0: g'day and welcome to the sea creatures podcast a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves each episode we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures podcast is Klaus Steifal. And he is a author, underwater photographer, and marine biologist teaching marine biology in the Philippines. And today we're going to be talking all about gobies. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. So... I know that you're just finishing up a book about gobies. So tell me first off, why did you write a book and why are you so interested in these amazing little fish?
1: So I was originally trained as a neurobiologist, uh, as somebody studying brains. And then I had I had the pleasure of having three different research positions very close to the ocean. And that was in the US, in California, in Japan, in Okinawa, and in Sydney. And then the thing which then started happening was that I was scuba diving more and you know as a trained biologist I just you know could not help myself but get uh, more and more interested in fish. At one point I decided I wanted to actually you know do a scientific study with fish and then I essentially you know mentally scanned the landscape and then my, my intellectual eye fell on the goby. And so so what are gobies? They're they're small, both marine, brackish, and freshwater fishes. They're typically elongate, you know, cigar-shaped. They're they're often very small, and very often they they either sit on the sand or they will sit on corals. Now, the thing is, there is an incredible amount of gobies. So this is something you notice whenever you go on a dive. So if once you, you have noticed, ha, there's a goby over there, you, you, you can't help it, that other uh, to find gobies, you know, wherever you look. And, and that kind of struck me originally, this, this enormous biodiversity. So if you go to Fishbase, which is uh, an online database of uh, all fish known to science, right now what's listed are 1,850 gobies. Now to compare, I think about 4,500 mammals are known to science. So they're just a little bit less than half as many gobies as, as they are mammals. And I think this is amazing. So, so this enormous diversity of gobies, you know, struck me right away. And then I adopted the gobies as my, you know, my, my main interest when it comes to fish biology.
0: Cool. So gobies are... Like they yeah, they usually like you know let kind of less than 10 centimetres, but they do get a lot bigger. They sit on the seafloor and I know they have a p- pretty peculiar way of sitting because they have a fused kind of pelvic fin that kind of lets them kind of yeah. prop up and stay on the seafloor. But what do gobies eat and where exactly do they spend most of their time?
1: So, uh, you know this is a question which uh which would have to do uh you know about 16 16- additional podcasts to answer that comprehensively. So in the 1,850 species of gobies, uh, there are there are massive differences. So for instance, if you, have you ever uh, photographed a bearded goby when you were in the tropics?
0: No. These are the ones
1: in between the cor. Yeah. But you, you know about these? I
0: actually was just so looking them are- up and I was going to ask you yeah. why they have beards or so much facial kind of, hair, as you would say.
1: Ah, you know, I don't think anybody knows. But you know what? The reason I brought them up is that so they live in between hard corals. At night, of course, the corals put out the polyps and then the gobies eat the hosts. So these gobies are essentially coral parasites. You, you know, so so, so they, they eat their, their, their tiny little houses. You have a lot of other gobies which feed on plankton, which feed on filamentous algae. They would feed on tiny crustaceans, potentially fish larva. So there's, of course, a size cutoff on uh, what they feed. But uh, there is, is a, a huge variety of food sources. Now, it's even... If you look at a food web, you know, just to explain for your viewers, right, you have this connection in every ecosystem that you have a shark which feeds on, let's say, groupers. The groupers would feed on wrasses, And, you know, that may be on, on parrotfish. The parrotfish would feed on algae. So there, so there is this system, you know, with different species feeding on different things. The gobies are very much at the bottom of this food web. And they are capable of, you know, feeding on this millimeter-sized crustaceans, basically. So they provide a link between these, you know, filamentous algae and tiny crustaceans to the larger animals in their food web. So they essentially get the, you know, the biomass up from the, you know, the primary producers from the algae and from the shrimp up to the mid-sized fish. So by, by eating these abundant food sources, they, they bring them into the, the marine ecosystems
0: yeah and i mean they just i mean just to go back to what they eat a bit they you know saying that the bearded goby lives in the coral and kind of eats the coral polyps and then they're also eating all these tiny shrimp and then i also know some gobies even eat parasites like kind of clean parasites off other animals so they kind of yeah exist in a huge part of the food web don't they
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. That's very interesting. What, what you mentioned with the parasites. So if you if you dive in in the Great Barrier Reef, you will see these cleaner wrasses, obviously wrasses, and they are specialized on picking parasites of bigger fish. Now the Caribbean doesn't have cleaner wrasses. And the, the ecological role of the, you know, the niche of the cleaner is taken by gobies. And interestingly, they, they have the same coloration. So a juvenile cleaner res has uh, black and blue uh, stripes, and these cleaning gobies look the same. Do you um, think
0: that's because the the gobies have kind of mimicked these other cleaner fish and then outcompeted them, or...? That they just, the fish that get cleaned kind of recognize the cleaner fish from other parts of the world. And so that's why the gobies have changed their color.
1: Yeah, I I think it's the latter. I think this, you know, blue and black stripes, they are very strong signal for the fish visual system. So, you know, this kind of coloration is very easy to see for other fish. And uh, hence, this is, you know, a very good coloration for a cleaner fish. So it, it is probably evolved independently twice. Wow.
0: And so you've mentioned, like we mentioned the bearded goby, which lives in the coral. What other kind of yeah. cool homes do they have? Because I know there's a few more really cool ones.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, my, my main passion, you know, among the gobies and actually my, my research interests are the, the shrimp gobies. So you have about 120 species of gobies which share a burrow with a small shrimp. And now, now why would they do that? So they, they live in the sandy plains, you know, in this uh, otherwise really inhospitable areas where, where they would have no place to hide from predators. The shrimp would stick that burrow, And if you look at these burrows, they often, they're very cleverly constructed. So they you know, they're almost uh, arches, you know, like a, on a, on a Romanic church, you know, they're on the entrance. So they, the shrimp use different pieces of coral rubber. To, to create a proper entrance arch. Now, the problem the shrimp has, it's not completely blind, but it, it has very poor eyesight. And the goby, as a consequence, helps the shrimp out. So what, what the goby does, it, it's motionlessly perches at the entrance. And if there is a predatory fish approaching, it would either just, you know, briefly flick its tail if the predator is still a while away, or it it would just escape into the burrow. And, you know, obviously the shrimp notices both. Then, so the shrimp essentially has a, a guard with a communication system to let it know if a dangerous predatory fish approaches. It's a trade-off, you know, a burrow digging versus guard duties. And this is fascinating to watch. So, This starts, if you're in Australia on the East Coast, it starts a little bit north of Sydney. So if you're in northern New South Wales, you can uh, observe species of gobies like that already. And you know, obviously, if if you're in Queensland and on the Great Barrier Reef, there's ample of that. Any patch of sand next to a block of coral would have shrimp gobies. So, so the shrimp gobies, their movements around their borough, this is the topic of the, the research project, which I'm, I'm presently writing up. Wow.
0: Because I always kind of think of it as... The shrimp is kind of like the the maid in a way, kind of like cleans house and, you know, make sure the burrow is nice and tidy and open. And then, <laughs> yeah, the goby, is you know, kind of just sits outside. And I didn't know it had that such a cool communication system, but it is amazing sight to see a really colorful shrimp. And a really colorful goby, kind of just hanging out together. It, it's
1: it's crazy. It's fascinating. Um, you know, in the seventies, these researchers in in the Red Sea would fill these burrows with acrylic, and then they would dig them up so so they could see the shape of these burrows. These are sophisticated burrows. That you know, sometimes they branched, and they are chambers for the shrimp's eggs. And what the shrimp also do, the burrow might start on sand, but then they will very quickly tunnel towards a spot where there is a, is a coral bummy or a rock, and they would use that as a ceiling. So, you know, they're very clever, the shrimp, and then they dig the burrow they, they maintain it. At night, they close it. So the, the shrimp and the goby hide on the ground and then the, the shrimp would collapse the entrance a uh, short while after sunset would they come back out. It's quite an intricate symbiosis, really.
0: Yeah, and so do you find, like, do pairs of gobies live with the shrimp? Like, if the gobies are breeding or is it kind of just a visit and then the, are there eggs involved in the burrow? Or
1: it, Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So... What you usually, when you observe this, if you want to observe this as a diver, you really have to be very good with your buoyancy and, you know, don't flail around and, you know, breathe very calmly and, you know, make sure you don't get too close. And then, you know, uh, you, you can observe this this behavior uh, when you're underwater. Now, when you observe that, you will typically see one shrimp coming out. In reality, there are two in the burrow, which, which would alternate. So... You know, one shrimp would push out sand and rubber while the second shrimp is still underground, and then they alternate. Now, they are typically a mated pair. They would spend most of their lives in that one burrow. The gobies, yes, you you see couples, you see pairs in one burrow very often, and I actually have. A footage of what I believe is a mating dance, you know, where they very quickly beat their pectoral fins. And so I believe what's mostly happening is that the, the goby would mate with a goby from a neighboring burrow. Now, very often these burrows are two or three per square meter. You know, this is a very successful symbiosis. So it's not very far to find the next gobi. So this is typically how they would mate. I believe they would then typically stick their eggs to a solid surface uh, near the entrance. In almost every goby species, I mean, shrimp goby or other goby, it's the male fish which guards the eggs.
0: Wow, it's such a cool partnership. I love some of the ocean animals really do split the gender roles. I guess because the female <laughs> goes to all this effort of making the eggs and laying them, and the male's kind of like, well, I guess, I guess I'll kind of, you know, watch out for them. But that's kind of fascinating. Correct, it's almost... it's
1: correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like a split of effort. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously like a big effort in terms of investing biomass to make all these eggs. You know, you also see that in the cardinal fish, for instance, of course where the male takes the eggs in the fertilized eggs in his mouth. Same thing, right? The effort is split halfway.
0: Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, it's really cool to see. I know with weedy sea dragons where the male carries eggs on his tail. Yeah. That's one of the biggest things people comment on is the uh, equal split in uh, gender responsibility.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, very interesting. Like, so, uh, of course, all other pipefish and seahorses do that too. Huh? Uh, interestingly, you know, like in, in ghost pipefish, it's it's not the case. So, that there the, the female breeds the fertilized eggs as well. If you look at pairs of ghost pipefish, you will very often see that the female is much bigger than the male for that purpose, right? So, she, she is doing all the job other than the fertilization the, you know, they're often, you know, more than twice the size of the males for that yeah. reason.
0: Yeah. And and I guess that's interesting that like, there's always kind of an exception exception to the rule. And that's one thing I was reading at gobies as well. Like there really isn't a set goby fact because they are, they are just so varied.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And you know, Huge amount of of specialization. So, you know, another thing is like, I just, just last weekend, I went uh, to look for gobies in the mountains uh, on the island where I'm living, which is Negros, you know, which is in the central Philippines. And so you find these gobies, you know, at 400 meters sea level, you find these small mountain creeks full of gobies. Now, you know, h- how do they reproduce? It's super interesting. Uh, they Again, the, the male builds uh, a nest, protects the nest. The, the eggs would then hatch. The larva would be swept into the ocean. There, you know, the, the larva would grow to adult size, which, you know, might take two or three weeks. Once the larva settles as a fish, it would swim upstream and sometimes, you know, six, seven, eight kilometers to a piece of uh, mountain creek. So, you know, Completely different type of reproduction than what you find in the ocean. All of these species have their peculiarities. Yeah.
0: And so just on those ones you mentioned, I presume these rivers are freshwater where they're actually making their little burrows and then they get swept into the salt and they come back to the fresh? C-
1: correct, correct, yeah. Wow. So, so you cannot breed them in an aquarium because once you know the eggs would hatch, and then the larva would uh, start swimming around in your freshwater aquarium. It would never turn into an adult goby because just this, the salt water is missing. Being in the ocean for two weeks is a stimulus, the need to become adults.
0: So they kind of, their reproduction is that they kind of, once the, the larvae come out, they wait until they get to the salt water to kind of grow up.
1: Yes, yes, they do. And I mean, this has a a number of advantages, of course, right? I mean, the the larva will be able to feed in a very different habitat than the adult. So there will be two very different types of uh, food sources for, you know, the two different life stages. The other thing is we're talking about really... Tiny mountain creeks. And, you know, it, it sometimes doesn't take much for that mountain creek to, to dry out. N- now, what's going to happen then, right? The lava will just find itself another river. So, you know, this is a very good way of settling different freshwater rivers via the ocean. Ah. And uh, fascinating stuff. Have you visited Hawaii? No, no. You usually go sometime. It's it's lovely. You know, in, in terms of destinations, everything is far from Australia. I understand that, <laughs> but uh, it's not actually it's not actually that far. You know, it's, it's relatively easy to reach. Now, Hawaii, the pretty much the only freshwater fish on Hawaii because of you know its remoteness are gobies, wow. which do exactly that. You know, they live as lava. And the, um, uh, there are a few exceptions, but mostly there are gobies there in the freshwater. Now, the, what Hawaii is famous for are these amazing waterfalls. So it is waterfalls, which sometimes are, you know, almost 100 meters in altitude. There are actually gobies which climb up. So they use, you mentioned the, uh, the fused pelvic fin of the gobies. So they use that like a suction device and then they, they inch their way up these waterfalls. So then, you know, you have these freshwater rivers, and they are separated by, uh, you know, 40, 50-meter waterfall from the ocean, and you still have gobies in there, which spent the first two weeks of their lives in the ocean. Wow. So, I mean, it's amazing biology of gobies. Yeah, that's, that's insane. I guess
0: that's why they have a- been able to colonize pretty much the entire world is because... Yeah, they, you know, one moment they're living with a shrimp and then a little bit of evolution and they're able to climb a waterfall. That is mind-blowing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And, and there is such a, you know, this diversity of different yeah, that Mind-blowing is exactly the word. You have invasive species, uh, your gobies which are invasive species. The Great Lakes in North America, they, there's this round goby which has completely taken over some of these habitats. So... You know, they got, I think they got there from Europe and they're now spreading while they're not, you know, they're not native to the region. So, you know, that's the thing with Gobi biology. They look very inconspicuous, like just a tiny fish, which tries to get away from you as a diver. And then, you know, you have to swim really carefully and approach and develop a really good eye. But then in reality, once you, you know, you, let's say you photograph that fish, then you, you know, you're back on land, you look it up and then you learn a little bit about it. A lot of these species just show incredible life history strategies. Yeah, and so,
0: tell us, what's your favorite goby?
1: My very favorite goby is probably Randall's shrimp goby. So there are two reasons for that. I believe you—you've uh, probably seen that one. So it's a white shrimp goby with orange bars and a very large dorsal fin with kind of a dot on that fin. You find that on drop-offs, often you have these little sandy balconies on these drop-offs. They're, they're typically deeper than 20 meters. They're really pretty gobies. And the species is named after John, you know, Jake Randall, who was one of the pioneers of fish biology. So he was based in Hawaii, and he was, you know, starting in the late 40s, early 50s. He was one of the first scientists who used scuba to to research fish. So, you know, I both like the Gobi and I like the fact that it's named after, you know, Jake Randall. Randall <laughs> just passed away, I believe, last year, last year at age uh, 92, 93, like in his 90s. Wow. So, you know, I think it's awesome that th- there's a Gobi to honor this great scientist.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, so I presume the Gobi was like found and named after him or did he find the Gobi?
1: Um, I, I, think, I think it was named after him. I think I think it's considered bad style if you uh, name a species after yourself. <laughs> I, I think it's still like that. So you you know you you can either name it after you know a location, or you can name it after somebody whom you admire, but it's uh, it's considered pretty narcissistic if you find a species and then give it your last name that's that's not being done
0: (laughs) yeah well i was i was just discuss the reason i ask is i was just discussing this the other day like is there a point like in history where people stopped naming stuff after themselves or was it always that way that they didn't do it
1: i think in science i'm not sure actually you know so obviously there's a this system for naming animals with you know genus and the species name uh goes back to Carl von von Linné you know the, the Swedish taxonomists, and I think that he he was active in the late 1700s yeah 1780s so yeah something like that and I don't think a lot of species were named after the discoverer. I think, you know, sometimes there's false modesty in science, but at least there's some kind of modesty. You know, I think that sometimes there is enough, you know, scientists would still have egos, of course, but I think in many instances, you're at least supposed to pretend that you are a a, a modest um... person.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess there goes yeah. my um, chance to name Matt's Gobi. So
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, you, you have to have to become famous and have a number of students and uh, they will find one and uh, you know I'm sure sure they will name name one after you.
0: So if anyone wants to see Gobies, let's go back on the Gobi track, like what's kind hmm? of some of the best places in the world and you know, what are your tips for finding
1: Gobies in the wild? Yeah, so you—I uh, assume most of your listeners will be based in Australia—and uh, based on the on the shore. Now, I've done a lot of dives in the Sydney region. I've done only a few dives in uh, uh, Port Phillip Bay, but the thing is, you know, gobies are everywhere, and really the key—I mean, there's this, this natural progression of your naturalist eye as a diver. So, you know, that. I see your backgrounds, There's this amazing marble ray. Is that a marble ray? I believe so, right?
0: A smooth ray, smooth and ray. And
1: that's, of course, as a smooth ray. Yeah? So that's, of course, a massive animal. And then if you see that, everybody will be amazed. And, you know, somebody, somebody with three dives, on, on your very first dive, you will notice this. Now, you know, the more you dive, just... try to teach your eye, you know, go slow. Well, there's a sponge. Ha, is there something moving behind that sponge? What's that? You know, and then really a common beginner's mistake. I'm sure you've seen that yourself a lot too, is that people are trying to be, you know, underwater Michael Phelps. Uh, (laughs) You don't don't need to swim very That's not the point of scuba diving, is it? So you want to swim slowly. And you really want to want to take your time to observe and then you know why there is really if you're with a dive buddy and not with a group there's an interesting looking rock with some activity stay on that rock for uh, fifteen minutes and then. Once you settle down, you know, once you're not flailing anymore, you know, once your, your breathing has calmed down, once you, you, you've you stopped kicking, you know, you, you should, of course, you know, have, have neutral buoyancy. And then, you know, if you calm, the marine life will calm down. And then, uh, you know, this will make it easier to observe bigger fish as well, right? You know, the resters will be doing their rest things. They will start feeding. You know, they, they will not be afraid of you. But especially these tiny, tiny fish. Fish, which uh, to which the gobies uh, belong, they will be, you know, coming out of the crevices. They will be, you know, moving around the corals or the rocks. Uh, They they will start feeding. You know, maybe you will see two gobies in a confrontation. So you know, if you go slow, if you you take it easy, try to make the marine life comfortable you will start noticing the small things. And then it doesn't even really matter that much where you are. There are definitely very interesting gobies in Sydney. And, number, you know, there's Husses, who the Who's who goby, I think, in English. And then that's, that's the, probably the most common species. But, you know, if you look in, in little crevices, you know, unfortunately, there's once in a while you see beer bottles underwater. You know, look into these, you know, what's there? Or, you know, the... Maybe there is a shell of a dead mollusk, you know, look below that. Maybe, maybe there's a goby there. So if you just take your time, you pretty much on, on every dive site, you, you you will see gobies.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, it's such a cool sea creature to go find because, you know, often if you talk about like, you know, big manta rays or something, there's specific places you're going, but because gobies yeah. are literally everywhere that, yeah, it's just I, you I, go and I, find them at your local dive site.
1: I agree, I agree, and you know I have to say unfortunately as you, as you know and agree many many parts of the ocean these days are are stressed right so sometimes you have uh, sites which are you know, too close to human habitation there's runoff and uh, you know that that in the in the tropics that would often kill the corals, but then What's very hard to kill are the gobies.
0: So I, <laughs> I've
1: been to dive sites, which, which, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a dubious distinction. So there's dive sites where there was just, you know, runoff from a fish farm. And, you know, all the corals had had died 15 years ago. And then we actually, and there was one such site where we found a goby, which was a new description from the Philippines, for the Philippines. So previously, that species had only been known from Papua New Guinea. And now we were the first ones to describe it in the country. And this was a site. I mean, it, it wasn't toxic material, there were you no know, heavy metals or anything, but there was just too much fish poop from our Chasen fish farms. And so a lot of the marine life had really you know, ceased to exist, but the gobies were still there.
0: <laughs> well, I think what I got out of that is that gobies are going to inherit the world When everything goes goes (laughs) belly up
1: you know uh yes likely and you know I hope so (laughs) (laughs) it it, it might be a better world if govis are rolling it not humans
0: (laughs) (laughs) well thank you very much for being on the show and if anyone wants to see any of your books or see any of your photos or any of your research what should they do and where should they go
1: yeah. Uh, so there. I actually wrote a book f- about Gobis. It's uh, called The Lives of Gobis. I'm still looking for a publisher for this book. So if you are a publisher or a literary agent, uh, or if you know one, you know, please get in touch with me. All my audiovisual material is on social media under the name Pacific Klaus. So, you know, Pacific, like the Pacific Ocean, and Klaus, like my first name, you know, with a K, not with a C, one word. So I'm on uh, Flickr, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and I also have a blog, which is a pacificals.com so there are particularly the, the youtube and the Flickr pages have a lot of goby material you know freshwater gobies there are marine gobies uh shrimp gobies photographs uh, videos so yeah please please visit please enjoy awesome well i am
0: excited for that book and i am going to try right now after this podcast and get a copy before it's actually published but well, thank you again for being on the show.
1: <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Secretches Podcast. First, I just want to thank all the Patreon supporters that we have so far. So thanks, Callie, Natalia, Warren, Annalise, Madeline, Thomas, Samantha, and Josie. If you'd like the show and want to support more episodes, jump on board at patreon.com slash Podcast and become one of our Patreons. Also, don't forget that you can get your own copy of Klaus's book, All About Gobies, by visiting one of the links or by keeping an eye on the Secretist Podcast Instagram where I'll post a link to the book. It's pretty good. Secretist Podcast is hosted, edited and produced by myself, Matt Testoni. Music by Dan Musil and his amazing slide guitar. And assistant production by George McGrath. You can see some of my photography on Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography on Instagram and Facebook or by visiting mtunderwatermedia.com. Coming up next time on the Sea Podcast, we're going to be talk- talking to Dr. Jody Rummer all about epaulette sharks, which are a lot scarier than they sound, but are pretty cool and crazy animals. So keep your eye out for that episode. This has been the Sea Podcast. Over and out.